We're looking through the Apostles' Creed, and we found out that this creed was first used as a vow as people entered into baptism, into water baptism, as a promise uh, for Christ followers to make as they began their faith journey or for guardians or parents to make for young children. And we talked about the importance of the creed being used in the liturgy, in the, in the service, and how that precipitated the shift from I believe in God, the Father Almighty, to we believe in God, the Father Almighty, and what, um, what the important implications of that were or are. And then last week we talked about belief itself, what it is, what it is not. Today, we hit a whole first phrase. Right? We're making progress. <laughs> we believe in God. <laughs> the belief we start with is our belief in God. And um, I, I'm just, I know that I irritate some people when I do this, but I, 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 I just need to dance a little bit more in the ambiguity of this. Because we're such moderns that want to control the whole world with our ideas, with our practices, and we think that we're in the world to fix everything. And thank God for modern fixing. Right? I'm glad that dentists are around to fix things. And modern dentistry saves many of us. Modern medicine saves many of us. There's wonders in discovering what was mysterious and digging through till we figure out what it is and then implementing those fixes. It's wonderful. So please don't misunderstand me. But that modern approach into the context of a physical universe is very different than trying to lean into eternity with that idea. It's actually inappropriate there because we're not dealing with a finite being in God. We're dealing with a God who is or a being who is infinite. So what does it mean when we use the term God? I mean, what or who or what kind of thing or being is God? In pure theological speak, this is a fairly complicated thing. Now, don't misunderstand me here. You don't have to be a theologian to be safe for eternity. Simple trust is sufficient, even if you don't know what exactly trust is you're trusting in. Just trust in the simple message of God loves the world. He gives Jesus. Anyone who comes to Jesus in some kind of openness is cleansed and is prepared for eternity. So, I mean, that's really the, the simple, simple trust is sufficient. It, this whole thing works for children, right? Um, so don't misunderstand me. When I get into some of the, into the deep end of the pool here and there's some weeds in there that are catching your toes, don't freak out. Um, even if you conceive of God as uh, a, an old guy with a beard sitting on a throne, which is, <laughs> looks like those chick tracks on the top of aging myself here. There's some of you that are in your 90s with me who will remember these tracks. I think we have a picture of it. See where God was on the throne like that? Faceless, a little scary. <laughs> but even though people can have images like that does not mean it's good theology. Um, it's, it, it's good to at least be aware that there's such a thing as good theology. And that there really is a deep end of the pool. Um, being theological and theologically aware protects us from an oversimplification that presumes too much on human understanding. And good theology helps you be a humble and open to God who is indescribable, who 
pulls out of you both awe and wonder. The Latin phrase was fascinans et tremendum. It means that you're sort of fascinated by there's something here and yet a little terrified because you can't quite figure it out. That's the, that is the, the phrase that captures revival, that you're sort of brought into this space of awe. In pure theological speak, though, speaking of God is a fairly complicated endeavor. Uh, theology tells us that God is incorporeal, incorporeal. That means that he has, or God has, no form, no body. <laughs> the Bible is full of language that suggests that he does, though, right? I mean, you read Second Chronicles 30, it says, also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind. Or in Psalms, it speaks of the eyes of the Lord. And over and over, the scriptures speak of God putting his enemies under his feet, or that the arm of the Lord was moving toward them. But these are metaphors, they're not descriptors because God does not have literal hands or feet or eyes or arms. God, theologically speaking, is incorporeal, has no form or body. That is how God is omnipresent. And God is infinite and transcendent. You see, what does that mean? It's, it, to a finite mind, we don't know what it means. It's like falling free fall. In the, in the eternity of the universe or something. There's no beginning, no end, no middle. How do you orient, right? It's disorienting. No beginning, no end. In Isaiah, God speaks, thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. God doesn't live in physical spaces like Jenks or Bixby. He inhabits eternity. The only reason we even know about God is because God made us to know God. We would never know God. We would never have a conception of God. Ecclesiastes says it this way, 3 and 11, God has set eternity in the hearts of people. See, the only kind of knowledge we can have of God is heart knowledge. St. John of the Cross says, quote, God cannot be known. God can only be loved, and that loving becomes a kind of knowing, end quote. But we're forced to use these metaphorical language words and symbols um, in our God speech and in our biblical language. You know, we call God the rock of our salvation or a consuming fire or a stronghold or a fortress or a high tower or a refuge. This is language that we can understand. Metaphors are helpful, but they can become quickly limiting because we think that is what God is when that's not what God is. It's ways we describe him from a finite human or what they call anthropomorphic, human anthropology, human side or view. We're just trying to grasp at trying to give names or language or form to God. The danger though is we make God in our image. Do you remember the, the, the Decalogue, uh, the Ten Commandments, starts out in Exodus 20, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or earth or beneath the waters below. He's not just talking about things that you can make to worship. He is talking about that. But he does, God is, is saying, don't make me into some kind of form that's in your mind. If we're not careful, we will create 
in our minds what we think God is. And we flip Genesis 1.26, where the scripture says, then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness. We flip that. And we make God in our image, in our likeness. And to do so is to create a false image of God, which is to create an idol. I'm sad to say this, but in oftentimes I'm, I wonder if many of the images that we carry in our minds about God in the church are just false images of God. Trying to give God form with language is deeply problematic. We have to do it because we're human and we have limited understanding, but, but, but it's problematic. How does one describe a being who is beyond description? <laughs> Augustine speaks to this. Watch it. It's a little double talking, so just try to focus on it. He says, quote, Have I spoken of God or uttered his praise in any worthy way? Nah, no, nay. I feel that I have done nothing more than desire to speak. And if I have said anything, it is not what I desired to say. Why? How do I know this except from the fact that God is unspeakable? But what I have said, if it had been unspeakable, could not have been spoken. <laughs> so I'm trying to talk about this, but I can't talk about something you can't talk about, but I'm talking about it. He says, and so God is not even to be called unspeakable, because to say even that is to speak of him. Thus there arises a curious contradiction of words, because if the unspeakable is what cannot be spoken of, it is not unspeakable if it can be called unspeakable. And watch this. And thus opposition of words is rather to be avoided by silence than to be explained away by speech. This is one of the reasons the church was always really careful to have periods of silence. Why? Because the clearest way to honor God is to not say anything at all. This is the psalm. Be still and know that I am God. This is one of the reasons we're to encourage silence. We hate silence. I hate silence. But we're trying to, even in the context of our communion gathering, is when we have silence, I mean, even in conversation, people feel awkward and weird. But what if that's one of the only ways that we can enter true worship because we're so full of words? Now, thankfully, Augustine goes on and says, and yet God, although nothing worthy of his greatness can be said of him, has condescended and has desired us through the medium of our own words to rejoice in his praise. So even though he's a being beyond words and beyond descriptors, he still receives, he condescends himself to let you call him, him, call him Father Call him, call God a rock, right? How many of you know God isn't literally a rock? God allows us to use figurative, finite language, but we have to realize that it's only figurative and it's always finite. Though descriptive language is problematic, it's necessary. We should welcome it. The truth is we are created beings and we can only use created things to make sense of what is around us. We use analogy to help us form a concept of God that makes sense to us. Just like when I was a kid, you know, the image used for ghosts, it 
in cartoons was a creature that had a bed sheet thrown over it. Let me give you a picture where you've seen these kind of things, right? Uh, it, the sheet, the ghost is not the sheet. But we needed the sheet in order to see the ghost, right? The ghost is incorporeal. So this is the kind of thing when we do when we try to give descriptive words to God, analogies about God. We're trying to just simply give God shape when God is beyond shape. Even using a gender pronoun like he or father, for God is merely figurative. I mean, theologically, we could call God she or mother because, and not violate the essence of God because God is neither male nor female. <laughs> there, there's some people who can't go there. <laughs> Because I've got God on a very fine point. And God is one of the things we know. But here's the problem. We're stuck when we only use created things as analogies. Because God is uncreated. And we cannot tag and file God. God is not just a thing or a being. Actually, all things and beings find their grounding in God. I brought a box of things with me this morning. And interesting things. Eyeglass, you know, for your glasses to wipe them. My dad's wedding ring. A random key that I honestly don't know what it goes to. Here's another thing, a little marker. Here's a holy maker. Here's a lens for a camera, the thing. Oh, here's a nickel. Here's a gizmo for turning things that need gizmos like this. Here's a, wait a minute. It's a gas pill, you know, like gas X pill. Or gas. <laughs> That'll shorten my sermon. <laughs> Which is a lot of gas. <laughs> Without, oh, here we go. Look at this. Here's the thing. God can't be put in here because God's not a thing. He's not one of the things we know. And sometimes we talk about him with such explicitness, we think he is. Instead of understanding that he's not a thing, in fact, you've heard me say this and it's a little kind of confusing to the mind, but technically, God does not exist. Tell your friends that. <laughs> What does that mean? God is the reason for existence. He's the grounding of existence. He doesn't exist. He is the reason for existence, right? Uh, in truth, God is beyond words and comprehension. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the ancient church fathers, 4th century, wrote this, quote, The nature of God is beyond the power of humanity to understand. We can study the world around us and see that God is but we cannot find out exactly what he is. We can only arrive at truths that tell us what he is not, like he is incorporeal. No, there's nobody. 
but not any positive. What's he, what he means is adequate, adequate conceptions that tell us what he is. We are compelled to use figurative and anthropomorphic, that means like human-like language, like calling him father or that kind of thing. Uh, but we must remember that all such language is only figuratively, figurative. All the saints in the Bible, privileged as they were, even the apostles themselves only knew God in part. This includes the works of God that transcends our powers of intelligence and of wonder, how much more the God who created them. So, what do we mean when we say we believe in God? We're saying that we believe in a transcendent being who is beyond description. We are saying that we're trusting God in a deep, dependent, and surrendered way as creatures. We are expressing a kind of creature consciousness, to use a phrase by Rudolf Otto. This God, the creed claims we believe in, has a Trinitarian shape. Father, Son, Spirit. We believe in God, the Father Almighty. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Spirit is the most accurate form, even though even that form is notoriously jammed with mystery. Listen to Augustine on this point again. For it is not easy to find a name that will suitably express so great excellence unless it is better to speak in this way, the Trinity. One God of whom are all things, through whom are all things, in whom are all things. Thus the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and each of these by himself is God, and at the same time they are all one God, and each of them by himself is a complete substance, and yet they are all one substance. The Father is not the Son nor the, Son, the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father nor the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father nor the Son, but the Father is only Father, the Son is only Son, and the Holy Spirit is only Holy Spirit. To all three belong the same eternity, the same unchangeableness, the same majesty, the same power. In the Father is unity, and the Son is equality, and the Holy Spirit is the harmony of unity and equality quality and these three attributes are one because of the all because of the father all equal because of the son and all harmonious because of the holy spirit okay what does that all mean right see there are levels of clarity so even if you read that with getting more clarity on what's being said, it wouldn't be quite as double-talky as it sounds. It would be more clear. But the conversation will always leave you peering through the doorway of a kind of enchanted forest <laughs> where the unpredictable and the surprising happens. There's something amazing about God, surprising about God, indescribable about God. Now, I get that this kind of stuff is uncomfortable for some of us, especially those of us who are over 50. I mean, we are children of the Enlightenment, and we like clarity, and we like answers. Just tell us. You know, don't, don't, don't pussyfoot around. Don't, don't, you know, let's, let's just tell the truth. Get it out there. Don't compromise. Don't compromise the truth. So we just want it straight. I mean, ambiguity to us, and I, this is really true. Those of you that are part of my generation, you know this is true. <laughs> ambiguity seems to us like laziness or fuzzy thinking. And there's this quest in us to eliminate ambiguity. It's, it's a real impulse of modernity. Let's fix this. Let's get forward. Let's take, let's take over the world. Modern people solve complexity. We find solutions and fix things. And importing that philosophy, that secular philosophy, into faith means that faith is in our lives to fix our lives. 
And faith is in our lives to secure change in our lives. That's why it's here. That's why we come to church. But what if that's only true sometimes? I mean, it's true. Sometimes miracles come, but other times the miracle of faith is not a fix. It's a shift in our perspective about what's happening. I'm 63 this year. And getting old kind of sucks, but it's better than dying young. And I'm beginning to notice this process of aging, and I'm in denial. I mean, I'm trying to fight back, man. I'd, I'd love to pray away the gray and pray away the knee pain. I even take supplements. I'm on the warpath. Fighting aging really is good. But the reality is accepting that aging is as important as it is to fight it from coming too fast. In the end, faith is not about always winning and always having clarity. In the end, faith is about an inner illumination in the midst of the complexity and mystery of the human experience. That's what it is. It's not controlling the human spirits. Faith is a way of living, not a weapon to win. All right. I'm going to get away from that and just start bringing this down. <laughs> The creed begins with the assertion that God, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. What does that mean, the fact that he talks about being the creator? And here's where we're winding this down. Let me close with a quick chat about creation, then we'll pick it up next week. We read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the text iterates seven days where things happen. And after that seven days is iterated, at the, in chapter 2 and verse 2, it says, by the seventh day, God finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, there are a number of theories about this. One of the things I love about the creed is it just says we're supposed to believe God created it doesn't say that exactly how we're to believe that happened. There is lots of room to muse about how creation happened and not violate the creed, right? When I was a kid, I was told that, these, that this reading was seven literal days, seven 24-hour periods. I was told that's what the scripture says, and if God said it, I'm supposed to believe it, and that just settles it. That was the kind of the cry. Uh, but I don't think that takes into account the various ways people read or understand what God is saying. And it suggests that there's only one way to understand texts. And that has never been tenable in the historical Christian story. The church people have always, fathers, individuals talking about, have always talked about the possibilities of a text meaning this or meaning this without getting thrown out. No one ever demanded one kind of read. And there are a number of theories about how to read Genesis that true Christians have held over the years. I'm going to give you quickly four of them, four theories. There's, I know of about nine, but there are four theories that have been held historically uh, in the church, and I want to give them to you quick so you can think about them. Number one is the literal theory. It is this one I just referenced. They read Genesis 1 and 2, and the theory is that it is literally seven days, 24-hour periods, which means when you do the math of genealogies in the Bible, the earth is around 6,000 years old. 
Some of you have been taught that way and some of you may still believe that. And that's okay. You can come to sanctuary and believe that. Okay? It's a hard theory to defend in the light of science, but it has a faith claim. And you may not, you know, you may feel you don't need to wrestle with science on this issue because it's a faith claim. Then the second one is what's called the gap theory. And this gap theory is simply this. In Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the theory goes that verse one shows this fresh, beautiful world that's just been created. But all of a sudden in verse two, listen to the tone and the appearance of this newly created world. It says, now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. This the theory goes, shows a world that has been destroyed. And the, the theory goes is that, you know, as you look at the Genesis text, we know that when the opening chapters start, you have this creature that's later called Lucifer, who's a fallen angel, but we don't have the story. You know, this creature appears in the beginning of Genesis and that we don't know the backstory. We though, though, from other texts, the suggestion is that he fell, that at one time he was an angel. And so where did that happen? It's suggested that it happened between verses one and two, that there was a falling. There also, this also could explain demons. Demons are disembodied spirits. Well, where were their bodies? But the suggestion is that maybe they were pre-humanite, right? Pre-humans like Neanderthals or Homo erectus, these different kind of species that they found uh, scientists have found, or anthropologists have found as predecessors of Homo sapiens. And so maybe that's where they, that's where they were. They were. That's why we find those remains and caves and stuff, because that between verse 1 and verse 2, they existed. Could have been billions of years. The dinosaurs could have all been there billions of years. All that stuff could have happened. But we see, pick up in verse 2, that there was a, a catastrophic event, and God is recreating in Genesis chapter 1. So that's it's called the gap theory. Then there's this theory called the time theory. This one's interesting. Um, simply stated, this is the idea that God created the universe old. Even though it's brand new, he created it to look old, right? So Adam and Eve, they were adults, right? They were, he created them as adults. So he created uh, the garden and the trees at various stages of growth. Just that first day, there's old ones, dying ones, just the whole, just everything was created uh, as though everything had evolved, right? Or everything had eventually come. God created it like a snapshot. Let's start right here. In order to see stars that are billions of year, light years away, he had to create a universe that was billions of years old. Or you would have never seen them, right? So God just made it all very, very old, even though it's very, very new, Okay. Fossils are there because for the world to be what it is, there would have had to have been fossils, so God just put them there as props <laughs> for human beings, right? Now, of course, <laughs> this would make God quite the trickster, <laughs> if, if not an all-out deceiver. <laughs> but it's a theory. Have at it. The fourth one is the literary theory. And uh, uh, this is how it goes. It's a little more complex to explain, but basically, it's the theory that the Genesis text was not a science book at all, or even an attempt to explain how God created the universe. That the text, the point of the text, was simply to say, God created everything that we see. 
That's the point of it, is what this theory says. Most gods of the ancient world, like the gods of the Assyrians, the gods of the Egyptians, and the sea gods, the sky gods, all these different gods occupied spaces and were responsible for different spaces. But when Moses asks God, who do I say sent me? When he goes back to Pharaoh. This is where we get the Genesis story um, in, in terms of the, the, the way um, uh, this, the, the understanding goes is that God was the one who gave Moses the book, the writing of Genesis and spoke to him. What was he doing? He's answering who he is. <laughs> who are you? He's not the God of that earth. He's not the God of that land. He's not the God of this land or the God of that water. He says, I am the one who created everything out of nothing. And I not only created it, I filled it with life. Who is God? The one responsible for everything we see. It's God's answer to Moses. And so it's put in a kind of poetic way. And when you dig into the language, the Genesis narrative is quite poetic. That's why this is called the literary theory. There are two key Hebrew words that are used in poetic fashion. Tohu wa bohu. Tohu wa bohu. And the equivalent translation is emptiness and voidness. And there's a dance here. When you say tohu, what it's saying is God created space for something. It's empty, but there's a space created that could have something. And then bohu was God filling that something. So you have tohu, there was nothing there, and all of a sudden there's tohu. There was nothing present, ex nihilo, nothing is there. All of a sudden there's something. It's empty, but it's something that can be filled. And then there's this movement of bohu, which is to fill the space that wasn't there before God made it, and then he fills it. So tohu wa bohu. And so we hear it played out. Listen to it. Uh, Genesis 1.3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from darkness. So the idea of light and darkness is this idea of tohu. God creates a space. God creates an emptiness called light and darkness. Okay. Now, interestingly... It isn't until a few verses later that God creates sun, stars, moon, right? So if God creates something that's light, what's there? Nothing, it's just space. And then he fills it, sun, stars, moon. So tohu wa bohu. So God creates this, and then God called the light, the light day, and the darkness he called night, even though there's no sun. And there was evening and morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So the Lord made the expanse and separated water from the expanse of water above it. In the ancient world, when they looked up and saw a blue sky, they thought there was water behind it. So you're dealing with a cosmology that they were. So they're thinking water's here and water's up there. That's why it's blue. Right? That's what they see. So, but there was this created, what would it, God was creating space. Right? So tohu, he's creating space uh, and emptiness, and it was so. And God called the expanse, this emptiness, sky, and there was evening, there was morning the second day. And then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry ground appear. So he's making space. And God called the dry ground land, and the gathered water he called seas. Again, this creates space. It's an emptiness, a void that is going to be addressed here in just a minute. And, and then... 
he says that it was good. In verse 11, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land, bear fruit and seed with it according to their various kinds. And it was so. This is where after he's created the space called land, now he does bohu and he starts to fill the space. The void is addressed. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kind, trees bearing fruit and seed in it according to their kind. And God saw it was good. And there was evening, there was morning the third day. And then God said, let the lights in the expanse of the sky, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky uh, that separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark season, days, and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. This was, and then it says, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the great light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. See what he's doing. He's not only created the space for these, but now he's filling it. Bohu, tohu, wah, bohu. He's Making the space, then filling the void of the space. And then verse 20, and God said, let the water teem with living creatures. This space now, had, let it have stuff in it. And let birds fly in the high, in, across the earth in the expanse of the sky, filling it. So God created great creatures of the sea and living uh, and moving things uh, of which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. So he's bohu, he's filling the void. The void is being addressed and God saw that it was good and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill see that idea fill the water in the season fill the skies this was evening and, and morning and the fifth day and then he looks at the land and let the land now produce living creatures according to their kinds livestock creatures that move along the ground and wild animals each according to his kind again he's filling the land the bohu the tohu that he had done and God made wild animals according to their kind, livestock according to their kind etc and then the last verse 26 says and God said let us make people in our image and let them rule. He's filling the void of earth with humanity. So in this theory, it's just simply saying that God was the one that created all the space that we see, the universe that we see. And not only did he create it out of nothing, he started to fill it. And so who is the God? He's the God who dances. Tohu wabohu. Tohu who are you, God? I'm the God that dances, and I create tohu wabohu. In this theory, there's no real need to squabble with science or to disagree with Scripture <laughs> because Genesis simply describes the dance of creation poetically in this theory. Now, I really don't care what theory people embrace Really, the only thing I care is that you say, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. I'm not exactly sure what difference it makes how God created things. Just that he did. And I won't fight people over this, but I will say this. I have seen way too many kids shoot off to college from fundamentalist families lose their faith over this issue. It seems silly to me. Make sure you discern the ramifications of your theological convictions. Our belief, again, is simply we believe in God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. Next time, we'll look at Jesus. I like Jesus. <laughs> a huge part of the creed is about him. There's a reason for that, and we'll talk about why. Let's stand.